1: Today on New Books in Middle East Studies, I am speaking to Michael Allen, who is Associate Professor of Comparative Literature at the University of Oregon. He received his PhD from Berkeley in Comparative Literature with emphasis in film studies, although his undergraduate degree from Brown was in history. He's held several Today on New Books in Middle East Studies, I am speaking to Michael Allen, who is Associate Professor of Comparative Literature at the University of Oregon. He received his PhD from Berkeley in Comparative Literature with emphasis in film studies, although his undergraduate degree from Brown was in history. He's held several fellowships and visiting professorships, both in the United States and abroad, and has written countless articles and book chapters on both literature and film studies. Today we're talking to him about his new book, out earlier this year from Princeton University Press. In the Shadow of World Literature, Sites of Reading in Colonial Egypt. Welcome to New Books, in Middle Eastern Studies.
0: Thank you, Nadira, very much. And thank you also for having me on the podcast today.
1: So your new book, In the Shadow of World Literature, the fundamental premise is this idea of plugging into world literature and what makes world literature, world literature. And the book covers colonial Egypt, but you're not a historian. And I'm really curious how you came to this project. What's your general background? How did it lead to the production of this book? What was the story of this book?
0: yeah so interestingly enough, I would say there there were a couple starting points for the book, and each each of the chapters, as you notice, takes a certain scene but i my training is as a comparatist, which essentially means that i tr- I train across national literary traditions so initially, um, in my study of French literature, I was always interested in the politics of bilingualism, and so French and English, French and Arabic. And I started with this interest in French and Arabic in Algeria, and then when I moved to Egypt, I um, then got more and more invested in Arabic. That said, when it comes to the question of world literature, um, the term for literature in Arabic is edeb, and one of the central questions of the book is, to what extent does a term like edeb, which has a whole, as, as you know well, a whole rich tradition in the context of pre-modern modern arabic thought how does that translate into a lexicon of literature in other words is edib something we could simply translate as literature and so that was a way of taking debates in world literature and saying how would it look if we respond to world literature not on some grandiose theoretical level but in a way that brings a sort of discourse of world literature often generalized as it is to a specific site and thinks of it in the context of a transitional historical moment when the term edeb comes to mean something comes to mean something quite different or comes to at least encapsulate a set of literary practices that it hadn't, you know, it comes to accommodate, you know, the, the rise of the novel, um, certain trajectories in theater, certain transformations in poetics and that sort. So I'd say on, on that level, um, you know There is a very strong dimension of the project that is anchored and very committed to a type of situated reading, which is to say um, in the context of modern Egypt, in the context of debates in, in Arabic literature, but is also attuned to um, some of the dynamics at play in what we would call a world literary system.
1: What I particularly love about this book is that it's completely relevant to everyday life. I think we encounter terms like world literature and world music on a day-to-day basis. I mean, I know that there are world lit classes that many individuals have to take in high school, for example. I did. I went to school abroad. And I like how the book deconstructs that particular and challenges it because the assumption tends to be in the general public that world literature is about these similar themes that cross different nations that are not necessarily part of the canon. So this idea of a national theme running through these works, I just think of Chino Achebe or of Naguib Mahfoud from Egypt. So I was wondering in particular, how is, was world literature conceptualized in comparative literature and how are you responding to that? What's your intervention?
0: Yeah, and I guess, I mean, on on one level, I am very intrigued by what goes on under the rubric of world literature and the the common trajectory of, you know, debates around Goethe, debates to to Marx and Engels' proclamations about world literature and the Communist Manifesto. Um, There's a lure there to me, which is the sort of internationalist vision of something like world literature interests me a lot. That said… The way that many scholars, particularly when it comes to designing curricula or constructing an anthology, will think about world literature is as a sort of collection or puzzle piece where each text functions as part of a puzzle of this larger global canon. And so in a course on world literature, the world is divided into little regions and authors are found from each respective region to represent in this global universalizing pantheon of languages and literatures that span the globe. And I'd say one of the key interventions I see my book doing is to shift our analytics as literary scholars or as historians away from an emphasis on texts and towards an emphasis on reading. And so one of the central propositions in the book is that or is essentially to ask the question, what would world literature look like if it were approached not as a compendium of various texts from across the world, but as the globalization of a particularly literary way of reading? And this I link to the rise of the modern university, to the emergence of literary training understood under the ambit of a modern discipline called literature, and then trace out essentially the world that that literary discipline constructs. And in that regard, literary reading, as it comes to take form in the 18th and 19th century, will find its objects. In other words, the objects and those texts that are read as literature may, in the argument of the book, Rely as much on this emergent reading practice as on any characteristic that's intrinsic to the text itself, and so that's why in the in the context of the various um, sites in the book, not all of the sites that I'm reading would classically be recognized as literary. So obviously Taha Hussein and Naguib Mahfouz, who are both of whom are featured in the book, would. You know, possibly be you know are certainly literary figures in in the classical sense, but a chapter on the Rosetta Stone or a chapter on the um, arguments around education in Egypt under the British occupation are less conventionally sites that one would expect to see in an anthology and sort of in a in an analysis on world literature.
1: Absolutely, I mean, I particularly loved how so the book has six main body chapters and they all seem to intersect and the argument really develops well throughout it. Uh, So one of they're centered around these different sites of reading and the first is world and this idea of, I mean, you call it the world of world literature. And the second is the idea of translation and looking at how the Rosetta stone is treated as an object. And then you move on to the idea of education and just different how reading practices within education um, have this embedded notion of what it is to, what it is to read and what makes literature. And then, of course, you move on to literature itself and that you brought up the issue of adab or literature in Arabic and just the complexity of that term and how it evolves because it was, this term has existed for generations, millennia, and it does mean something quite different. Uh, towards the turn of the last century. And then you go on to this discussion of Darwin. And then finally, how intellectuals view themselves and that they situate themselves. Um, so I don't know, would you like to run us through each of those different elements? Because each is so rich.
0: Yeah, I will say, I mean, one of the questions that comes up for me in this book is, it, you know, it, it, if I claim to be working on a historically grounded analysis of transformations in literary culture, Why does the book not include the conventional sociological analysis or a run of, you know, how many presses were there? How many readers were there? And I take very seriously what's actually the the after title in the book, which is sites of reading. And as you've just glossed, each chapter of the book takes a different site for reading. One of the orthodoxies we have as literary scholars is to take a text – and to, uh, to sort of submit it to a practice of close reading. And that's to say, um, you know, if it's a poem um, and you're in a class, you'll read each line of the poem carefully, and over the course of that analysis, come to note little textual details that give life to this text and allow you to sort of notice formal qualities. For me, there's a shift in question. So if I'm moving away from a textually-oriented analysis... Um, why I use the term sites is that each of these chapters is microscopic in its focus. The chapter on um, uh, the Darwin debates as they're staged in is a specific chapter of Naguib Mahfouz's trilogy is a really microscopic instance in an otherwise huge book. But why I take that as a site is precisely because I'm interested not so much in a formal analysis as I am in competing frameworks through that one, through which that one microscopic site comes to be understood. So, in the context of Naguib Mahfouz's trilogy, the debate in a family where Kamel, the son, publishes an article on Charles Darwin is actually both an instance where we see Mahfouz reflect on the rise of literary scientific journals and the son's participation in it with this contribution. But actually, the chapter is as much about the father and mother's struggle to read and understand what their son has published. And so, for me, the sight of reading there is to understand how it is that that instance in Nagi Mahfouz's trilogy becomes a set of competing frames through which one particular event is understood. Methodologically, this plays out um, in the in one of the opening scenes of in the the first chapter of the book, where um, and this is an event probably quite well known to anyone who's sort of lived or worked in Egypt, um, when Haidar Haidar's book um, "Banquet for Seaweed" was published in Egypt, um, sort of a re-edition of the book was released, there were a set of protests um, around El Azhar. The the the. Uh, Islamic University. And a number of students took to the streets to protest what they understood to be blasphemy in the novel based on an assertion that had been um, offered in the newspaper that um, Haider Haider had juxtaposed the word Quran with an expletive. And so I was living in Egypt at the time these debates were happening, and a number of the students who had gone onto the street were actually fired upon by the police. A number of them ended up in the hospital. So the conventional way that this sort of site of reading is understood is to say that, oh, these students didn't actually read Haidar Haidar's novel. If they had, they would have understood that it's not an instance of blasphemy and that isn't this a tragedy that people don't appreciate and understand the important role that literature plays in, you know, our modern world. And I guess for me at the time, I couldn't help but wonder, what would it mean to see and take seriously the student's investment or critique of the text as a critique? Why is it that the literary community um, necessarily purges certain relationships to texts from the domain of proper reading. Um, And this one could draw back to the translation of the Bible, for example. When Luther translated the Bible into the vernacular, one of the fundamental concerns was that people wouldn't know how to read it properly. So, along with bringing a text into readers' hands becomes this obsessive policing about Um, understanding and disciplining readers to make sure that they understand what they're reading in a proper way. And so, in a sense, when I talk about something like world literature or shift, I'm interested essentially in contestations over the conditions through which one comes to be understood as someone who reads properly or who becomes, I I borrow from Pascal Casanova's terms, who becomes, in the parlance of of world literature, a, a citizen of the World Republic of Letters.
1: It's so interesting because in many ways, this, this is one of the strengths of the book is that even though it's not a historical study and it doesn't necessarily go through every book written during this period or doesn't go through similar cases to the Rosetta Stone, it really takes the Rosetta Stone, for example, as a case that we can look into as emblematic of a greater context. One of the strengths of this book is that it really does push the reader um, or the academic to think about whether or not... This particular way of thinking about things, whether or not these systems that are enforced via education or via international relations, you can just go on and on, um, whether or not these situations exist within different historical contexts, whether or not they exist even within our day-to-day existence, what is it to read in modern 20th century, 21st century America, um, so I was particularly curious about what what brought you to Egypt in particular? Why did you think that this was the case study that you were going to use to make this very um, critical argument about world literature and reading?
0: Yeah. I mean, one of the... One of the aspects that interests me a great deal about Egypt, particularly during the 19th and 20th centuries, is that it is already an incredibly – it's a site of numerous overlapping debates. So, not only is there the Ottoman tradition that inflects understandings of education in Egypt, but the French um, presence in Egypt – and the British Empire's presence in Egypt, make it a site where you get very rich contestations over what the modern university ought to look like or what the Kutub system ought to become with the formation of the modern state. And so um, an axis of this book that interests me, uh, uh, sort of that that is of interest to me as, I'm, as I worked on the project, was to think about how it is that a process of of secularization, um, which is to say a a process whereby religion comes to be understood as a a category that, you know, in, in a certain way, the ways then that you have in 19th century Egypt, a distinction between the modern secular university and what comes to be understood as religious education. So even in the 1880s, with the formation of Dar al Alum, you have a group of scholars who break away from al Azhar, which was this sort of, um, you know, longstanding Islamic uh, institution for the, you know, for for training. You had Dar al Alum break off and in in a sense create the basis of a modern literary discipline that was to be used to train. Uh, teachers uh, f- within what would become the modern Egyptian state. Um, so, one of the questions for me is, how does literary reading reckon with what it comes to deem religious reading practices? And so, throughout the book, um, if we see the horizon between a modern notion of literacy and textual practices that come to be understood as illiterate, um, you know, that distinction hinges a lot not so much on the colonizer and the colonized distinction, but, but quite centrally as well on a distinction between, um, those who see themselves as modern secular and, um, you know, modern secular educated readers and a whole dimension of, of a shared social world that, that comes to be understood as religious or, you know, in, in even more, uh, sort of caricatured terms as, as fanatical. Um, and so, Um, For me, thinking about what literature becomes with a discourse of secularization and in um, a polity that that comes to be understood as as a secularizing polity, um, what are some of the fracture points or what are some of the divisions that occur there? I don't think that that issue, which is to say the religious-secular question, is paradigmatic to or sort of is exceptional in the context of Egypt because even, you know, in in any um, social or so, when Jules Ferry in France passed uh, the famous Ferry laws, you know, religion and secularism were absolutely at play there. So Egypt, for me, becomes a site precisely because, you know, it, it has these overlapping dimensions. But the story I'm telling is one that I don't see as necessarily and restrictively only pertinent to Egypt.
1: Absolutely not. I mean, mm-hmm. and I think as you, as I mentioned earlier, what's so great about these different sites of reading is that they really are just examples of a larger trend within, a trends within these societies and with Egypt in particular. So I was actually curious, how did you come to pick your different sites? I mean, you have certain characters that appear and reappear, like the Hussein and Nagi Mahu, who are um, just, I mean, two of the uh, most important literarians to come out of Egypt so how did you come about picking them or even the example of the Rosetta Stone?
0: Yeah, so I will say, you know, and this is sort of as a, you know, there were certain questions that interested me as I started the book. And that is to say, what would it be to take, move from a text-based focus to a readerly based focus? So there were certain sites that necessarily lent themselves to me. And I'd say much of the project um, was spawned initially by um, my sort of by the Haidar Haidar scandal and the, the debate and firing on students who were protesting a novel and my sort of frustration with members of the so-called literary community who seemed unable to uh, reckon with what it might be to have a critique of a novel that one might not have read. Um, and so that site became initially for me the a way of, of framing this this broader question of like, what is the world of world literature and who are the, um, the, you know, what sort of readers or participants are are written out or pushed out of the parameters of being citizens of the World Republic of Letters? The other sites um, largely came from, you know, uh, in, in a body of research where, you know, in the process of researching, certain things would lend themselves to me. So, the Rosetta Stone, obviously, you know, one of the iconic sites um, or, you know, in a history of colonial Egypt, um, I was reading, you know, sort of looking at La Décade Égyptienne, which was one of the early journals that came out of the Institute, um, L'Institut d'Egypte and was quite interested by how this object came to be understood. And so each chapter more or less takes you know, as they called it, a sort of microscopic site and then thinks about different frames for it. The Taha Hussein and Naguib Mahfouz, you know, obviously uh, part of my selection, part of why they, you know, are drawn to my attention is, is there somewhat iconic status in discourses of modern Arabic literature in the sense in which whether it's Naguib Mahfouz's Nobel Prize or whether it's Taha Hussein's... Um, Sort of translation quite early on into French at the hands of, uh, you know, about passing along his his um, autobiography to André Gide, you know, they're they're all sort of iconic within the the, you know, what we call the world literary system. And I'd say, well, just as a as a brief addendum, that my interest, you know, again, has as much to do with analytically. What each of these sites does for reconfiguring the very problem of what it is to read or analyze, um, you know, in in the various settings that the the book stages for us.
1: As I have mentioned before, I find this argument highly appealing, even though I'm a historian, um, although a uh, historian of intellectual history, I find this highly applicable to the way we think about inclusion or exclusion in various different uh, social or cultural spheres. But I want to return to the fact that this isn't a history, and you mentioned this several times explicitly. You're like, I am not a historian. This is not a history. This is thinking through these different sites and thinking about the idea of world literature. Again, very emphasizing the production and throughout the book itself. It's almost a theme in itself, the fact that this is not a history. <laughs> uh, and I was curious, if you could reimagine this as a history, not that it necessarily has to be a history, how would you do that? Would you use the same sites to structure a project like this? Would you... Um, just simply add more empirical evidence in i mean what would your technique be i mean you have that background in history
0: yeah this is a i I love this question um part of my disclaimers at various points in the book that this is not you know that a reader who's expecting an empirical a sort of a length a sort of robust archive of you know evidence and publications that that would support a an authoritative historical narrative of literacy sh- shifts in literary practices and, and in literacy from the 19th to the 20th century in Egypt isn't there, is in part, you know, a concession that that's not what I'm doing in the project. And yet I could equally, and I sort of at various points do insist that there's something almost more historical about the type of work I'm trying to do than – a a different sort of literary history. And why do I say that? Well, my training in intellectual history brought me to an interest in historiography, which is to say I became fundamentally interested in history of history writing. And I'd say as I've turned to literary history, one of the central concerns of this book is essentially not to say this is modern Arabic literature and I will bring you forth an archive of various texts to support, um, you know, from Jehez to Nagi Mahfuz, what this, corp- what this canon should be. But it's actually to say, what if we take or recognize a certain contingency to the category literature and understand that there may not be a seamless narrative that runs in across that unites, you know, pre-Islamic poetry and the modern Arabic novel. What if, in other words, we recognize that literature comes to mean something different at different points in time? Well, in that case, then, a project of that sort does something different, which is to say it's a project that, you know, in Joan Scott's term, offers us a history of a category. And I would say that I, you know, where I draw, where I've sort of been influenced by a training in intellectual history is fundamentally to think about a history of categories as meaningful to the practice of what we do when we relate to the past. And so, you know, in the spirit of this book, if we consider the translation of EDEB into literature as a linguistic or a philological question, I would say so too is the translation of Edeb into literature for me um, on a very you know meaningful level is is also a question of historical translation. How it is that in the 19th and 20th century, edeb comes to mean differently or edeb comes to have a different set of connotations or comes to accommodate a set of practices that prior to that moment, it might not have. And so in that sense, you know, it's sort of to, to respond directly to your question, I would say, yes, there's disclaimers that I'm not doing a sort of narrative, History of a particular sort, but I would say I would align myself in the spirit of a history of categories as a sort of literary historian who takes very seriously um, a historicization of you know what centrally concerns me, which is to say the the category of literature.
1: No, I mean I find this completely applicable to my own work, and I've had many of these same thoughts in different variations, particularly because. I work on, uh, I'm working on an intellectual history of the press and with magazines in particular, you see a switch to edeb magazines, literary magazines, but what is it to be literary? And they struggle with this for quite a time, whether or not that means that you're going to include critical essays, whether it's strictly literature, um, whether or not edeb is needed to build the nation state is something I feel is grappled with. What is it, if you are going to be in the, if you are now, uh, sort of thrust into the light of the colonial system, what do you do in order to advance? Is it to adapt Adab, or is it simply to adapt, adopt Adab as a, a symbol of being modern or civilized, or is it about technology and science? So this is a really interesting conversation that I, I, I wish historians who think about class thought more of as these different concepts and different sort of sites of engaging uh, with what it is to be modern as a concept within these individuals or subjects own, uh, mind frames, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also wanted to, before we close the interview, because you've given us so much to think about today, I just sort of wanted to ask, what is your next project? What are you thinking of doing? Does it connect to this at all? Or are you taking a break?
0: <laughs> yeah. No. So I've actually, um, you know, all, you mentioned that I, I, uh, you know, sort of this background in film alongside my interest in literature. And, and the, the next book I'm working on is actually um, following Alexandre Promio, who was one of the camera operators for the Lumière brothers film company. And in 1896, so soon after the development of the cinematograph uh, took the camera to Algeria, Tunisia, Egypt, Palestine, Lebanon, um, and on to, to Istanbul and, It's a project that's essentially tracing his travels um, of the Lumiere brothers across the the Middle East. I'd say if there's any connection to this book, um, it shares analytically in an interest in a formation of a sort of transnational uh, flow. So, in this case, uh, the Middle East, what is the role of the Middle East in the the globalization of a medium? Um, If the fundamental Interest I had in my first in the shadow of world literature is what is the story of reading when refracted across different educational frameworks. Um, then, one of the questions that concerns me in my analysis of the Lumiere brothers is um, what it means to be a medium, uh, what is a medium, and how, in effect, what is it to picture the world cinematically? So if philology and comparative grammar give us a discourse that becomes foundational to world literature and comp lit, how do we think about the visual discourse inaugurated by um, the cinematograph as altering or inflecting um, what it means to picture the world? And by that, I mean not only the, the questions around indexicality that are linked with photography, but also issues of duration and the disciplining of spectatorship that emerges um, eventually with, with the rise of, of modern cinema. So that's, um, I guess, it's it's an oblique relation to this first book. But, um, you know, there's certainly echoes in, the, in, in both projects.
1: Oh, no, that's so exciting. I can't wait to see this. And I also can't wait to see the discussion that arises out of this book. It's quite new in the shadow of world literature. So thank you for giving us some of your time today. And good luck with your future projects.
0: Nadira, thank you so much for the conversation. I really enjoyed chatting with you today.
1: Me too. Me too.